Welcome back. I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fuliana Osborne. This is Inside Exec. We're continuing this week our discussion with Jamie Wadley on all things GPT. And if you haven't heard the first part, I would encourage you to listen to that first of all because we talked about the basics, about understanding the different versions, the different types and, and what it's useful for. This week we're going to look a little bit more in depth about how you get it to do things and that's called prompting. And it's a phrase or a sentence or a couple of paragraphs, apparently, that you put in to instruct the large language model, the LLM, to, do, to, to provide you with some sort of response. So we might ask Jamie, first of all, to run through for us what prompting is and to give us perhaps a couple of examples so that we can understand it better for those of you who haven't used it up to this point in time. So prompting is how we interface with these large language models. And it's not dissimilar to putting in a search query into a search engine. But um, I've, I found with my prompting, I think like most people, they start off fairly simple and usually come in the form of questions. They can be so much more than that. I, uh, I think of a prompt myself as... Uh, a cross between computer coding and poetry. By asking the right question, you can generate a much more powerful answer. Some of the earlier prompts I played with in the beginning, I used to be amazed at the differences in a slightly different fashion. It might be in the form of asking it to uh, give you an answer and giving it a, a list of things that it needs to do to, to give you that answer. As you were talking I was a little bit concerned about the word question because in my experience of using it, very limited experience I will say, I wouldn't say I ask it questions, I will ask it to do something for me or I will instruct it to do something for me. So I might say to it, please write me a poem, 16 lines about a topic rather than can you write me or can you please write me poem about this particular topic so I, I would tend to think of it more as instruction rather than questions but that's probably semantics he's smiling at me at this point in time <laughs> and lucky Fuliana isn't here because she would be rolling her eyes. I guess it's just how you approach the model I probably incorrectly personify it quite a bit and I'm in the habit of saying please and thank you when I ask it to do things. And I, I think that's true. You do give it instructions to do things. And some of the things I've had the model do have been quite intricate instructions. But really what we're doing is we're asking it for an output of some kind, whether you call that a question or whether you call that an instruction. As Kim said, it's, it's just semantics. But the term that people use now is there's a, a new job position that's become a thing now that these models are becoming more more widely used and they're called prompt engineers and these prompt engineers are people who have got a skill to write a question for these models to generate the most concise the most rich output that it's capable of after you've used a model like gpt for a week or two i think you'll find that the complexity of the things you write will uh, will be vastly different than they would have been the day uh, the day you first started to use it so does it become then more a conversation 
I think that's true. It, it is very conversational, but ideally with the right prompting, the conversation is almost one-sided because the, the words you put in can lead to a, an output of up to a 1,000 words, probably not quite that many. But a, a complex prompt that I will give GPT now to help me with some content creation, it's not out of the question for me to write probably between two and 500 words of instruction. I usually give it the instructions by way of first summarising what I need it to do, and if it's a complicated task, I give it a list of things that I think it needs to do first. It might be first research keywords for me that are significant to the topic I've chosen, review those keywords and find semantically similar keywords that we can use in creating a piece of internet copy to use on a website. These things that I'm talking about are are more based around doing search engine optimization, but it's something that GPT does very well. You can get very granular in what you want it to do, and for the most part it will do it. Kim mentioned a poem that is 16 lines long. It's funny, the models have trouble with getting things like that correct. If I say I want you to write an, an article on this that's 500 words wrong, chances are it won't even get close to that because the nature of the way the output is created, it's simply generating the next word, and it stops and starts, well, stops rather, when it's finished. And it's very hard for it to know whether that last word will be word 500 or word 328 or word 642, because it's not counting the words. It's simply generating the answer for you, one word after another, so it, it doesn't know what that answer will be until it's completed it. The machines themselves, though they are very clever, they don't have the ability to think like we do insofar as we reflect as we think. They think in a more linear way where they start the process and it takes them from one point to another. So while there might be some sort of planning involved in what it creates, it's not like we can come up with a, you know, like a poem, for instance, and say it's going to be in this format and it's going to be this many lines and have that as the end result. But this will just write one word after another. I, I heard it described whether this is relevant or not. It's a bit like when we recognise someone's face. We don't look at their face and look, sit back and reflect on it. It's a linear process where we see someone, we recognise them, we know who they are, and that's a linear form of thinking. The large language models do very much the same thing insofar as they don't think about what they're thinking. But you can, by prompting, help them do that. And this, once again, makes them more powerful, but that's probably a story for another time. So with the prompting, then, those of you who have been long-time listeners will probably recollect when we first spoke with Jamie many years ago that he talked about a background in computing and in coding and in writing code. So if we look at that for your particular instance, does that make it easier for you to think in the prompting fashion? I don't think it helps me. It doesn't help me write the prompts themselves, but maybe it gives me a bit of an inkling on how, with this linear process that we've just mentioned, will roll out. Because in, in programming, back in my day, when I was programming, it was essentially what you're writing is a, a list of instructions that you need a program to perform. And for the most part, it followed a simple process of these are the inputs, this is the processing, and this is the output. I probably think of the prompts I create in the same way, 
but I don't sit and write code that it becomes a prompt. Uh, I might well write a list of things I wanted to do, but it's far more about being as accurate and maybe a little bit colourful with what you're telling it to do, rather than say, I need you to summarise this text for me. You might ask it to please make a concise summary of this text. And what we're doing is we push it a little bit harder to create better output for us. It makes a big difference. It's funny, you wouldn't think it would, but certainly by making the prompts better, you will get better results. And as I say, give it a week or two and you'll find your prompts are, are vastly different than you would have used on day one. A beautiful segue because, as you would know, if you've listened to us for any period of time, we're very big on accurate speaking in, in these podcasts, so thank you for mentioning that you need to be accurate in your speaking. But I do want to explore that because accurate speaking is something that we as a species are lazy about and we will use the all-every-never phrases at a drop of a hat to explain away instances in our lives that are, are not working the way we, we want them to or for whatever reason. In this new age of using computing power that is at our fingertips in one way or another, accurate speaking to my mind is going to become more important because if we're relying on GPT for a lot of our work, our basic work, we need to be accurate about what we're using as the prompts and that then should flow on to our interpersonal relationships and, and speaking in terms of our, our workplaces. With a prompt, if you are not accurate at the first prompt, and we talked about it being conversational, can you refine it as you go along? I, I think I've found that in that conversational mode that you do refine the answer as you go. Do you get a refined response? So, so you ask a basic question, you do the basic prompt. We'll, we'll use the poem as the example and say, write me a poem about the garden and it writes your poem, and then you decide that it's not quite right. So you'll say, write me a poem about the garden in summer. Do you get a totally different poem, or do you get a refined, a refinement of the original poem? Well, the answer is yes to both, because you can ask it to use the initial yeah, output yeah, as a basis, or you can tell it to completely recreate another one. But that ongoing prompting is, it will do exactly as I've asked it but sometimes it's easy to forget that it's not a human being the other side of the computer and it'll give me exactly what I've asked for but if you say a poem about the garden in summer that is fruit and flowers that has bugs eating one of the leaves on the tree that's there it will it will flesh it out and make it exactly what you've asked for once again so the the accurate speaking is very important but in the same token especially in my earlier encounters with GPT, I'm a horror for the typo. And I was amazed that it would still understand what I was saying. But that said, having those mistakes in it probably limited the quality of the results I got. It's very good at understanding how to text. And I think this is why it will be commonplace for this to have an ear and a voice so we can talk to things like GPT rather than type prompts into them, which I think would be convenient, but because of the nature of the accuracy required, 
unless you're very good at saying exactly what you need, it's sometimes easier to type out an answer and edit it before uh, you fire it across GPT's bow, so to speak, to, to have it produce the result. 95% of the prompts I create, I actually create in an editor first, and I refine it and change it until I'm happy that it says what I needed to say, and then I paste it into the, the prompt box, for the want of a better word, and ask GPT to act on it. So I guess the hesitation for us, having been trained in the world of the search engine, where we had only a, a small space where we were putting in our questions or our queries, is that with chat with GPT with of its various versions, we can have it essentially as long as we want the instruction that we provide for it. There are limits, and those limits are escalating. But I think that the at the time of recording, the limit of what I can put in as a query into the model I use is I think it's four thousand. And 96, let me just drop another word in, 4,096 tokens. And tokens is how GPT breaks up the messages we ask it into small, almost like syllables. So it's probably limited to about maybe 1,500, 2,000 words. It's a fair instruction. (laughs) So I don't think that'll be a limit for some time. But that said, sometimes you might want to just summarise an article. You know, it's the classic example of too long, didn't read. You can grab text and paste it in and say, please summarise this for me or please place it in bullet form for me. And this is something I use it for a lot, just to save me from reading volumes and volumes of text. But just give me the, the parts I need to know. Give me the salient points is often a, a term I use. And it's very, very good at that. But once again, with longer articles, by pasting them in, I do hit the limit of what it will accept as a maximum amount of text. That problem's been partially solved by the fact that we can tell it to, to look at a web page and summarise that for us now, but, but that's getting a little bit away from, uh, from what we're talking about. In the first part of our discussion, you did briefly touch on the idea that people might lose jobs or jobs might be at risk and that the best thing to help with that in terms of your understanding was was to try it out and to become conversant with it or to find a way to use it that would enhance your productivity or your work environment. If we look at the productivity first of all, and I'll put you on the spot and say, can we talk about your productivity? So in terms of productivity gains that you've seen over the, the time that you've been using it, has it been worthwhile, it be, given that it's something that you have to learn to use? I think the, the bottom of the learning curve is quite short, and I think you'll find after you start to use it and get comfortable with it, it definitely will improve your productivity. I, uh, in the beginning, used a term that I learned from a gentleman by the name of Dean Jackson, and he talked about efficiencies in how many hours per hour as opposed to kilometres or miles per hour. And in my hours per hour, when I really started to use the model to its... To, well, I'll use it as well as I could, I, I sort of gauged myself as running at about 10 hours per hour that I was getting out of it. Now, that wouldn't be something I could keep up on a continuing basis because it was 
hard work, but it will certainly give you a, a multiplier and in some instances you might find you get efficiencies that are far greater than that depending on the sort of work you're doing. And I think as a result of that, that you know, people using these sort of technologies will be far more efficient. You know, the downside of that is is we'll need less people to do the same amount of work or the upside might be well, with the same amount of people we can be far more effective than we were. And offer different services or offer, offer a different product because all of those projects that might have been on the back burner because we haven't got the resources, the physical resources to investigate them, to carry out, to implement them, now we're freeing up some human resources to work on those projects, whether it is that it's a combination of, of using their skills with ChatGPT to develop a project to a stage where it needs to, to be tried out. So all of that, that research and the trial phase and the investigation and the, the groundwork that happens with any sort of project, if you've got someone who has got time freed up from their other activities because of their proficient use of, of GPT products, can then go on to a project that has been on the back burner for a while and get it started in that same sense of using the res these extra resources because what it provides is extra resources, I would think, for any kind of activity. I think that's true. I, uh, I tend to look at GPT as being my incredibly intelligent and incred incredibly smart uh, system. That's it for part two of our discussion with Jamie Wadley about all things chat GPT. Join us for part three. For now, I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fuliana Osborne and this is Inside Exec. <laughs>